Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Citoyen, bienvenue au Rest is History avec moi, Dominique Sandbrook, et mon ami Tom Holland. Ou, comme on dit en Égypte, Achlan Marawapan Mikom Filalbaki Ho Altarik, me, Dominique Sandbrook, Wasadiki Tom Holland. That's right. Our subject today is the French invasion of Egypt at the end of the 18th century. Napoleon, the Rosetta Stone, the Battle of the Pyramids, the Battle of the Nile, Tom Holland. This is the best subject we've done since Alexander the Great, isn't it? I'm still reeling from from your impersonal... Multilingual. <laughs> your... <laughs> Yeah, Multilingual. I, I mean, I've had so much grief for my frankly brilliant impression of Liam Neeson. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you've got it quite rightly. That was shocking. You got two. You got two different. You got what? That's that's. I am very much. I'm not parochial. I'm not <laughs> introverted. Right. I'm talking to our international <laughs> audience, to our French and Arabic <laughs> listeners, and just giving them a little nod that we're not all, you know, Wiltshire and Stonehenge. <laughs> that some of us are very outward-looking citizens of the world. Yes. Uh, that's definitely how I see like myself Napoleon. and how I think I'm seen. <laughs> um, yes. Okay. So, so today's episode is on one of the most brilliant episodes, not just in the Napoleonic Wars, but uh, I mean, it's one of the great stories of history. How Napoleon. <laughs> I mean, he he invades Egypt, a 2,000-mile trip across the Mediterranean, dodging the, the Royal Navy and so on. And um, it's brilliant both in itself, but also because it opens the floodgates for study of Egyptology. Uh, and in a way, it's, it's the kind of... Um, it's a kind of primal start, isn't it, for the relationship of Islam with the modern West. So, Tom, let's take up the story. Um, we are in the late 1790s. Napoleon is not yet 30. I mean, that's the, one of the extraordinary things. It's a, bit like Ale- it's a bit like Alexander, isn't it? it? That's what I mean. So much about this story is actually a self-conscious Absolutely. reenactment of Alexander's conquest of Egypt. So Napoleon, you know, he's from Corsica. He has distinguished himself kind of with his whiff of grape shot in the service of the directory who are running France um, after the sort of the backlash against Robespierre. And, 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 and before the whiff of grape shot, he has um, saved Toulon, which is the kind of major French naval base on the South Mediterranean coast. Um, That's right. And he has uh, he, he saved it from a kind of a royalist British takeover uh he's seen that yeah. off um a character called sydney smith uh as in the process of evacuation has blown up part of the arsenal so he's a, fa- a figure who will reappear but this is one napoleon so much kudos that he basically he he ends up being given command of, of the revolutionary army that then invades italy 
Exactly. That's where he really makes his name, isn't it? With the Army of Italy. Um, so this is the late 1790s. He wins battle after battle. And that's after David's battle. painting, isn't it? Of him looking dashing in a exactly. horse, crossing the Alps. Exactly. So after a very rough time for France, suddenly they found this dashing, swashbuckling hero who's actually, whose Frenchness actually is slightly ambiguous because, of course, he's from Corsica. But Napoleon gives them something they haven't really had during the days of the kind of endless sort of revolution eating itself, Madame Guillotine stuff, which is a genuinely dashing, handsome, swashbuckling, youthful hero. And that's what David puts in his paintings. And Napoleon gets all this loot. I mean, Napoleon is incredibly corrupt right from the beginning. He basically amasses tons of loot. So he's suddenly very rich. He's very famous. He's a celebrity. And the directory love him. The director are well, basically using them as their... But they're, well, but, they do, you're right. Because they're starting to get worried, <laughs> aren't they? They're quite keen to get rid of him because they can right. sense that this is a man um, in a hurry and on the make. Um, so their first scheme for him is um, Britain. Yes. They talk about invading yeah. Britain, don't they? Talleyrand, yeah. um, who is the foreign minister. He and Napoleon are very keen on this idea of invading Britain. But basically, Napoleon says, eventually no go you know it's going to be much too tricky but it's one of these great invasion scares in britain at the end of the 1790s so they go for the obvious alternative so why cross you know 20 miles of of the channel when you can cross 2000 miles and go to egypt and so well, the quest, it's an anti-british yeah it go on, absolutely Tom. is and so in a way this is fighting this is taking the water britain because egypt has become strategically key because of the British, the, the emergent British Empire in India. And this yeah. is what's grumbling on in India at the moment is um, actually Arthur Wellesley fighting, so the future Duke of Wellington, fighting Tipu Sultan in Mysore. And it's becoming clear That's right. that, well, I mean, basically, you know, it's been clear ever since the Seven Years' War when France was roundly defeated, lost its, its holdings in Canada, lost its holdings in India, that Britain now has a kind of global grip the French are obviously slightly envious of. Um, and so Egypt becomes the target, both because it will frustrate British links with India, but also, I think, because the French see North Africa as kind of their backyard. They do. They've sort of been thinking about expanding into the Mediterranean. And we talked before in a couple of our podcasts about how during the French Revolution and the sort of late you know, it's the sort of late period enlightenment. There is this, this extraordinary romance of Greece and Rome and this fascination with the classical world and classical antecedents. And Napoleon has already been pictured as a kind of Roman figure, hasn't he? I mean, crossing the Alps is quite kind of Hannibal like behavior. And clearly, right from the start, the idea of invade, as soon as the idea of an invasion of Egypt is mooted, People are thinking, oh, just like Alexander the Great, and this is going back well, to the Romans. The, yeah, so, so you know what's in their you know minds. What, uh, Talleyrand, who is a, a, such a kind of Peter Mandelson cubed, <laughs> I mean, kind of brilliantly subtle, clever, manipulative survivor, constantly being knocked down, constantly coming back. He'd been royalist. He becomes a Republican. He ends up a royalist again. I mean, it's kind of astonishing record. But he said, he, he said, Egypt was a province of the Roman Republic. She must become a province of the French Republic. But I think on top of that, what you're, what, what, what is also bubbling away here is the idea that actually um, Egypt is much older than Greece or Rome. And that if you want to study the real roots of culture, of civilization, you know, it's not enough to go to Rome. It's not enough to go to Athens. You've actually got to go to Egypt. And it's still pretty much 
terra incognita. People have started going there, but there's a sense that there are vast, vast treasures just waiting to be found. And so I think that that also is absolutely a part of it. Well, they don't. Yeah, that's one thing sort of imaginative leap you have to make. They don't know what we know. So you're right. There are, there are not the detailed descriptions and pictures of Egyptian antiquities that we're all familiar with that British or indeed children anywhere in the world grow up with these days. So there's a real sense of this is a, a, a not just a, I mean, it's an amazing story because it's not just an invasion. It's not just a blow against the British. It's a genuine voyage of discovery. And that's why Napoleon assembled 151 savant kind of intellectuals. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just he's got tens of thousands of troops and the fleet. He's got all these boffins to come with and him. And a hot air balloon. And they are... <laughs> I didn't read... Where's the hot air balloon? I didn't know. It's a Montgolfier hot air balloon he takes. Um, because, do they... Do they... Does yeah, it go no, up? They, do they, they use it? They launch it in Cairo and everyone's very impressed. And they take a load of printing presses, including uh, including one, uh, the, the only Arabic printing press in the whole of Europe. Do you know where that was? Uh, Salisbury. No, it was the Vatican, brilliantly. So it got right. nicked from really? the Vatican. <laughs> When he, when he occupied I did not Rome. know that. Um, and, uh, but, but he's also, they've got a plan. They know that there was once, because of this thing about India, they know, or they think they know, that there was once a canal yeah. going across the, yep. what, yeah, the Suez Canal. And they are thinking, well, if we can do something like that and find out where it was, then that will give us a massive advantage over the British. We can get to India and we'll control, you know, the sort of hinge of Eurasia, basically. Yeah. So it's it's um, it's geopolitical. It's colonialist. It's romantic. Um, it's personal for Napoleon. He wants to become the new Alexander. It's political for the the Directory. They want to get rid of this overambitious general. Um, it is also that it, it's still kind of I think warmed by the the embers of revolutionary fervor. So. Um, there's this guy, Dominique Arago, who who says he, he lists the reasons why the French should go to Egypt. And he says it's to offer a suckering hand to an unhappy people, to free them from the brutalizing yoke under which they have grown for centuries. And finally, to endow them without delay with all the benefits of European civilization, which is nice. So uh, th- there is this sense that the, the French, when they go there, see themselves as kind of the, you know, the, the embodiments of the of the future, well, they're, um, they're bringing liberty. They're bringing enlightenment. I'm sure you've got it, Tom. But when they embark at Toulon um, on the 19th of May, uh, 1798, Bonaparte gives this extraordinary address to his troops, soldiers. He says, "You're one of the wings of the French army. You've made war on the mountains, on the plains, in the cities. It remains for you to fight on the seas." The Roman legions that you sometimes imitated but no longer equaled fought Carthage now on this same sea and now on the plains of Zama. Soldiers, sailors, you've been neglected until this day. Today, the greatest concern of the Republic is for you. The genius of liberty, which made you at her birth the arbiter of Europe, wants to be the genius of the seas and of the furthest nations. So you've got so much going on there. There's a lot going on there. But all that stuff about Carthage and Zama and stuff. I mean, it's well, great, so Carthage it? is Britain. Yes, the, clearly. The commercial naval power. Right. Who, who must be destroyed. They care only for money and killing children. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but also the, absolutely the idea of, of liberating Egypt, which is, um, it, well, it's, it's, it's supposedly a province of the Ottoman Empire, but it, effectively it's ruled by the Mamelukes, so who are this kind of incredible dynasty of, of slaves who get bought in 
mainly from the Caucasus. Well, they weren't slaves um, recently, were they? I mean, they were slaves hundreds of years earlier, presumably. No, but they, they continue to buy them. So they're they, still they, buying they, them? They, they, yes, yeah, so they get bought in and they, they live as slaves as children and they're kind of raised to, to become Mamluks. And then I think when they kind of sprout a beard or something uh, and they've done their military training, then they're elevated to the to basically they kind of become free. Yeah. But I mean, it's kind of very odd. You know, you serve your apprenticeship as a slave and then you end up as a kind of ruler of Egypt. And that is, you know, that's a tradition that goes back to the 13th century. Um that they defeat the Mongols, kind of one of the great decisive battles in world history. But before that, they had defeated the crusade of um, Louis VII. Right. Which is a kind of yeah. precursor. So the French have got so unfinished the, business, haven't they, basically? Uh, th- th- there's an incredible kind of snarl of weird historical parallels, echoes, inspirations going on here. And it's just incredibly Napoleonic. And one of the reasons why Napoleon is such an amazing figure is that he kind of surfs the waves of all these kind of different trends and ideas um, and does it with such kind of self-confidence that he he gets the world to accept him on his own estimation. Absolutely. It's because he has that sense that great historical characters, I mean, I don't know, Alexander Churchill, let's say, has this too, that he is a figure in history. Napoleon has it from a very young age. And certainly by the, when he sails to Egypt, he's consciously reenacting classical precedents. And he thinks he's writing an entirely new chapter in and world he history. Is. And he is. Well, as he, as he, he does. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So he makes a promise right from the beginning, doesn't he? Um, he basically pretty much before I think he even lands in Alexandria, there's obviously this issue that all his campaigns so far have been against other European Christian nations. So this is the first time they are, they are going, you know, they, they're not just going to, the, to an unknown land. They're going to a Muslim land. And that gives it a real edge that it hasn't had. So, so, so Napoleon is always issuing these kind of streams of um, announcements to, to the Egyptians in this kind of ludicrously cod Quranic language. Um, a bit, I remember it's kind of uh, in the wake of 9-11, there was a real trend for Western politicians to do all that, you know, peace be upon him and God the all-merciful yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, and Napoleon... Uh, so Napoleon, well, Napoleon is, George is, w. Bush is really the first analogy. Western leader who does this. Um, so there's loads of kind of... Uh, <laughs> have we not for centuries been the friends of the Grand Seigneur? May God accomplish his desires and the enemy of his enemies. I mean, it's it's so great. Yeah. Um, and then w- when he actually gets to Cairo, he has this... And he's he's talking to an imam. And, and he... Glory to Allah, there is no God but God. Muhammad is his prophet, and I am one of his friends. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's and great. I, and I don't think anyone is really fooled by this. But he says at one point, doesn't he, uh, I want you to tell the people, he says, Cardis, Sheikhs, Imams, Chorbadjis, and notables of the nation, I ask you to tell the people that we are the true friends of the Muslims. Wasn't it us who destroyed the Knights of Malta? Wasn't it us who destroyed the Pope, who used to say that he had a duty to make war on Muslims? Wasn't it us who have all times been friends to the great Lord and enemies to his enemies? I mean, yes, is anybody, does anybody believe this, Tom? The stuff about, I'm the enemy of the Pope, I love... Allah, I'm, is this all? I mean, to does everybody see through it? Do you think? Well, I, th- I think um, yes. I think basically people do see through it. I mean, in, in private, Napoleon is is much. I mean, he so he takes the Quran with him. He takes his library with him. Herodotus, all kinds of stuff, um, and he he categorizes it under various different labels. And he ca- he he catalogues the Quran uh, not under religion but under politics 
which I think kind of gives you a, a kind of indication as to how he's reading this. And he, I mean, you know, in private conversation, he's absolutely upfront. He kind of says, um, we, you know, we must lull this fanaticism, uh, you know, we must kind of lull it to sleep uh, so that we can then eradicate it. So he is very in private, self-consciously feeling that he's going there um, as, as a servant of the Enlightenment. But in public, he is talking about being, you know, the friend of Islam. And I think that to a degree... He's kind of kidding himself. And I think that this is one of the reasons why it's such an interesting topic going into the, into the present day, because I think he does feel that, um, that the Enlightenment and the ideals of the French Revolution provide a kind of neutral place where people who have emancipated themselves from Christianity can be neutral between Christianity and Islam and superior to both. Um, and this becomes kind of the controlling conceit, really, of, of, of French secularism right the way up into the present day. The idea that the, the, the French secular re- revolutionary state is superior to and can absorb into its fabric kind of different cultures, different yes. civilizations. Yeah, that's very familiar, isn't it? But let's let's part that for a second. We get back into the sacral and the secular. Um, very mm, can't f- wait. Uh, familiar topics <laughs> to some um, in the second half. So they land. They land in sort of Alexandria. They, they march um, across the desert towards Cairo. And basically, they're about nine miles from the Great Pyramid from, from Giza when they meet the Mamluk army. And this is one of these, you know, almost science fiction moments in, in history where you have a very, very modern, well-trained, um, well-equipped European army facing a Mamluk army that basically is technologically much more backward. It is doing kind of mad cavalry charges but, but, towards guns and stuff like that. But it's not helped itself by having divided itself in two. Because there are effectively right, exactly, two yes. Mamluk leaders, and and one one of the armies ends up on the wrong side of the of the Nile. Yeah, um, forty thousand of the Mamluks don't even get to the get, get don't even get to the battle. So yeah, kind of but, crazy. But it's such a kind of dramatic setting that you've got the the great citadel built by Saladin of Cairo across yeah. the Nile on the left side as, you're, as the French facing it. And in the distance, and there are arguments about whether they could actually have seen the pyramids. Supposedly they couldn't see the well, pyramids, but in all the paintings. Yeah. Every painting that's done of the battle, because of course, there's tons of paintings of the Battle of the Pyramids. And in all of them, they're basically fighting in the shadow of the pyramids, aren't they? I mean, they might as well have and, and been hiding behind the pyramids. And you have thing from Napoleon that soldiers, 40 years of, 40 centuries of history look down upon you. Uh, and and yeah, again, so, people yeah. have, the assumption has been that this is retrospective, but actually the, apparently there's a letter. That was that was written the day after the battle. That that basically implies oh, right. that so he did say, yeah. yeah. So so there's a very kind of um, histrionic, self conscious <laughs> sense that this is an amazing place for a civilizational battle. Uh, and of course, Napoleon wins it, uh, and he yeah. occupies Cairo. Um, the Mamluks retreat down the Nile, and Napoleon sends. Um, which is up uh, the Nile, surely. Yeah, up the Nile, uh, under uh, um, a, a very distinguished general called Desai, who pursues the Mamluks up the Nile. Um, and again, just kind of looking ahead to when we come, come on to the Egyptology bit, um, they take various savants with them as they go up the Nile to pursue them. But Napoleon is now in charge of Cairo and it's all looking good. But at this but point, then, yeah, but then, hooray! as if we didn't have enough good characters <laughs> in this. Um, so... They had evaded the British, hadn't they, to get to Egypt. They had invaded the Royal Navy were basically chasing them. So Napo- so Nelson had been given orders to, to basically stop the, the the Armada. And it's a vast armada. I mean it's it's um it's it's three hundred and thirty five ships 
it's it's you know hundreds of guns cavalry men i mean it's it's kind of almost up there with xerxes invasion it's it's on a vast scale and nelson is just herring around trying to find it and there's one kind of excruciating moment i think when they're pulling out of malta which which napoleon has has captured and the french can hear nelson's ships kind of sounding cannon through the night so that you know the british squadron can can keep track of each other and they're just sailing silently so that nelson won't know that they're going past <laughs> so nelson is furious about this tom this is so patrick o'brien i can't believe you don't like this <laughs> yeah, well, so jack our producer loves these books and he like me is disgusted that you are rude about patrick o'brien and rope well, it's too much. I've, I've said this before it's too much rope but you know if it was just nelson like that i'd be all over that but in the end nelson works out where napoleon's fleet is and it's been um it's it's kind of been stationed in abakir bay which is off off cairo in the mouth of the nile and um the the french fleet have have moored there because there are very very narrow shallows that they think no no fleet could get round and so essentially were the british fleet to be able to go past these shallows the the flank of the the french uh fleet would be terminally exposed and that, and of course, exactly is exactly what, what Nelson does. So Nelson divides his, his attack. Half go one way, half go... You know, they cut off the French. Um, so they're basically... They're between the land and the French now. And it's about a three-hour battle, I think, the Battle of the Nile. And the sort of high point of it is when Nelson himself, towards the end, is hit, isn't he? He's shot. And he's already lost one eye before. So he's he's hit quite... I mean, it's people say it's only a flesh wound, but it sounds quite bad, like his skull well, is exposed. And he had that famous line, didn't he, that... that um, before the battle that that i will gain either a peerage or westminster abbey exactly he's kind of ready to ready to to die and it's interesting that in this battle there are quite a number of of um well kind of echoes of the future story to come so there's there's um there's one lieutenant lieutenant thomas hardy who will um who has seized some egyptian pilots who then are, are used to help negotiate the shoals and there's also hms bellerophon which is actually the british ship that gets most damaged um, and it kind of ends up drifting off. And of course, Bellerophon in the long run is the ship that will pick up Napoleon. Uh, yeah, after, after Waterloo. Um, and it's the cause of a famous, uh, of a famous poem, is it not? Is it? Yes. I didn't know. So Lorient, Lorient, the, um, the flagship that, Na- that Napoleon had sailed on, the, f- the vast ship. And, um, it gets pounded and pounded. It's got lots of gunpowder on and it explodes. And the admiral, of the ship, the commander of the ship, Casabianca, uh, he dies there and his son dies and his son is standing on the deck and refuses to leave until he's been told by his father to leave. And so you get this famous poem, the boy stood on the burning deck whence all but he had fled. The flame that lit the battle's wreck shone round him o'er the dead. And do you know Eric Morecambe's version of that? I do not. I do not. I should. The boy stood on the burning deck. His lips were all a quiver. He gave a cough. His leg fell off and floated down the river. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, not a river, unfortunately, but um, there you go. Um, so Napoleon, so Nelson is hit. He's got lost one eye already. Uh, a flap of skin falls down and obscures his other eye. So he can't see anything. He's very frightened. He shouts, I'm killed. Remember me to my wife. And then he's <laughs> taken down. Hamilton. Yeah. And the surgeon says, actually, you're fine. You know, it's just a kind of, it, it looks bad. Yeah, man up. Get back up there. You're snowflake. So back he goes up and uh, they win. But there's a great, so it's an absolute crushing victory. So almost all the French ships of the line, that's the big warships, are either captured or destroyed. It is, it shatters the, the, the French fleet. There's a lovely detail afterwards. So um, Nelson is still quite blinded. 
he can't really see properly so he's going around presenting gifts to the um to the other captains and to people who distinguish themselves in the battle and because he can't see he gives us he gives a toothpick to a man who's had his teeth blown out no. and he gives and to a man do you know what he gave a man whose nose had been shot off no he gave him a snuff box <laughs> <laughs> Oh goodness! Yeah. Anyway, so Nelson recovers from that uh, that that mishap, and basically at that very moment, so the, the invasion is not very old, but at that moment, you know, the French are, in tr- are doomed really from then, aren't they? Napoleon says he's told what's happened, and he says we no longer have a na- navy. Well, we'll have to stay here or leave as great men, just as the ancients did. Now, of course, people who listen to our Alexander podcast yes, exactly will remember that Alexander had sent away his navy. Yeah. After invading Asia Minor. Or indeed Cortez burning his ships. Cortez burning his ships, exactly. So there yeah, is a be kind aware of, of both those parallels. Exactly. And he would and he would almost you know Napoleon being Napoleon, he would almost welcome this. Because it would see it as a chance well, uh, to prove his worth and valour. I mean I think one of the weird things about the, the Egypt exhibition is that it it kind of it, it serves as an overture to Napoleon's campaigns in Europe. And of course, you get Trafalgar, where Nelson again destroys a French fleet. And Napoleon's reaction is to blaze off and win the the Battle of Austerlitz. So I I don't think that Napoleon feels that this is terminal. I mean, he's he's still ready to go the full Alexander. And that's basically what he does. So he's in Cairo. He has strange Egyptian um, uh, sort of festivities, doesn't he, where people are cheering him and Mohammed together and yes. well the, the, so the french the french fun celebrations for Mohammed's birthday that's and it, yeah. to, to celebrate i think it's the seventh or eight, i think seventh revolutionary year which begins i think in september they have a massive great public celebration where they they kind of raise a, a triumphal arch um, that's right they do yeah and they kind of put revolutionary slogans and quranic slogans on it and they have a vast meal where uh, everyone is supposed to sit down, so the Egyptians as well as the French. And next to the, the, the placemats, they include quotations from the Quran and the Declaration of Human Rights. So strange. Yeah, but, but I mean, you know, that is, that, you know, that's, that's where the French Republic basically still is. I mean, it's this idea that you can combine the French Revolution with, say, Islam and that there's no kind of civilizational tension there but there is also this third element isn't there which is that it's sort of done as a roman there's a bit of a roman triumph so they go through a, a triumphal arch and it's sort of it's a bit like the sort of triumphs that mark antony had organized in alexandria you know that sort of he'd imported the roman triumph when he was shacked up with well Cleopatra. Na- napoleon has an affair doesn't he with with a woman who he he calls yeah. his Cleopatra. His Cleopatra, exactly. Um, and he's calling himself all kinds of things, isn't he? He's uh, At one point, he's been given the title Ali Bonaparte, which he's calling himself the favourite of Allah. I mean, all- <laughs> this is all this kind of cosplay. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's exactly what it is. But, it's basically, he's a man in a computer game. But again, uh, so, so basically a month after, you know, this Rights of Man Quranic stuff, um, there's, a, there's a, a rebellion in Cairo. Yeah, so clearly no one in Cairo is kind of wearing this at all. It's, and, it's absolutely and, gibberish. And Napoleon's response is absolutely brutal. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he fires cannonballs at the Al-Azhar Mosque, which is, you know, the, possibly the most significant mosque in the whole of Islam. I mean, it's... Do you know what he says? They no. say that God will save us. And he says... Oh, yes. um, yeah, too late. No. God is too late. God <laughs> is too late. You have begun. Now I will finish it. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and, and he orders all the heads of the uh, the rebels to be piled up in, you know, uh, 
in a great square and the corpses to be thrown in the Nile. And it's actually very, very kind of Battle of Algiers. And again, this kind of the, the, the tension between the claims to a kind of universal enlightenment and brotherhood that the French Republic embodies and the kind of willingness to repress very brutally people who oppose that is a theme running from Napoleon right the way up to the, up, up, up to the Algerian well, Revolution. Well, some people would say that's a theme, wouldn't they, of European colonialism? It is, That yes. on the one hand is the sort of... But I, know, think, the- I think with France, it's more ideological. I mean, in Britain, of course, they're blasting people out of cannons and all kinds of things, but they're not claiming to, at that point to embody yeah. Enlightenment ideals. No, no, you're um, right. And I think that that's the kind of peculiar quality of tension you get with French imperialism. Yeah. Right from the beginning. So, so he does this. Then he, I mean, we better sort of whiz through the rest of the, some of the rest of the campaign anyway, because he goes up to Syria, doesn't he? He, he decides he he's does, basically yeah. going to, he's going to reenact the Crusades. So even though he's been cut off, no fleet, all this, he thinks, well, I'll, I'll just keep going, basically, Alexander style, or I'll do a bit of Richard the Lionheart. So he captures Jaffa, doesn't he? And then he goes up to Acre. Which, satisfyingly, for for sort of John Bull types, Richard the Lionheart had captured, but Alex, but um, Napoleon doesn't manage to capture it, does he? Because his, his troops will get played. Well, to be fair, Richard the Lionheart had captured it together with Philip II of that's true. France. So we we mustn't. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but and and the, the basically the um, so it's held by the Ottomans. Uh, yeah. a, a, an Ottoman relief force comes down, gets defeated at the Battle of Mount Tabor which is uh, very significant for Christians. It's where the transfiguration is supposed to have happened. Um, but there's a British commander, Sidney Smith, who's the guy who had... At too long. At too long. Uh, and, and essentially he he forces Napoleon to retreat. So again, a kind of precursor of the retreat from Moscow. Very perhaps. much. And even then, I think there must be a sense in some of the French soldiers' minds, rather anticipating what's going to happen in you know 10 or 11 years. They must be thinking what the hell are we doing over here? I mean, what's going on? Why are we trudging through this? We're meant to be defending the French Revolution. And here we are kind of, you know, basically in these biblical landscapes. Or they've all got dysentery and typhoid and stuff, haven't they? So it's just and an absolute nightmare. Yeah. And Napoleon has done this kind of, um, you know, a bit like the kings would go in and, and touch people for the king's evil. He's gone into plague wards and, you know, Diana style. But uh, there's claim, there, are, there, are conf- there are conflicting yeah. claims about this, yeah. aren't there? Yeah. Some say he goes and embraces the soldiers and, you know, it's very... <laughs> and others say he keeps a, a distance <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, yes. He's, he's masked We're, up, basically. So again, this whole kind of myth-making is so self-conscious. Yeah. And, and he says that, that had Acre fallen, had Sidney Smith not spiked his destiny, he would have, have carried on. He would have made them into uh, the, the, the immortals, he says. So the, 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 the guards that guarded the Persian kings, the ancient Persian yeah. kings. Um, and that he, he would have won a new battle of Isis, the, the, the battle that Alexander oh, yeah. defeated the Persian yeah. king. So um, but, Napoleon's but crossed about that, he, but he didn't. So he had to go back and... That August, 1799, he, he defeats a, an, another Ottoman invasion force at, at Second Battle of Abakir Bay. He does uh, indeed. And then he, he, hold, he, held a, he held a triumph, by the way, when he got back to Cairo, <laughs> yeah, which is um, very, very Mark Antony-style <laughs> behaviour. Like, I've just been defeated by the Parthians. The first thing I, I <laughs> it's have, great news. Let's celebrate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, of course, and then he absolutely he disgraces himself, doesn't he? Very un-Alexander behaviour, I have to say. He just runs away. <laughs> well, he On his would own. Say, in, he would say... <laughs> Well, he would say that he was going back to save France. 
Yeah, that is well. That is what he said. He said, uh, "Francis, Francis beleaguered. I must return immediately." <laughs> yeah. But he basically leaves everybody else behind, and he also tells them he's going to go off sailing around the Nile Delta. He says, "I'm just going to go off on a little kind <laughs> oh. of uh, weekend excursion." <laughs> I'm off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do, you, do you know the uh, Jean Baptiste Clébé, the, um, the I do. general who what he said he, about it? Oh, I don't know what he said. What okay. did he say? I quote: "The bastard has shat his britches full." When we get back to France, we will rub his face in his own shit. Oh, my gosh. Well, Clébert didn't get back to France, did he? No, he didn't. He got, because, in a, again, in a kind of fascinating echo of current trends, he gets assassinated by by um, what we'd perhaps now call a fundamentalist. A fundamentalist. A guy from a guy who's actually Kurdish. So he's not even... Um, he's he's not been e- studying he's... at the Al-Azhar, so he's he had, very ideologically yeah. motivated. He's been and radicalised you... and he... And do you know what happens to him? I do. Oh, I do. So, I would, um, so tell the listeners is, what happens to him. He is... Um, horrible. He is... So his right hand is burned, isn't it? That's the right hand that wielded the dagger. But then he is killed by being impaled yeah, on he, a blunt stick. So a, to slow it down, they sort of jam him onto this... And his own weight... And they bury it in him. the soil. So he's kind of s- sitting there. As yeah, so he's kind of down. sinking, slowly sinking onto and the he stick, make, which he kills makes him. not a sound... I can't believe that. Would you? No, because there are French observers who say this is incredibly impressive. This man never let out a cry, except then to kind of yell out "Lalahu Akbar" at the end. You know how long it took? Four four hours. Yeah. Here's the thing: would who would stand there for four hours to watch this happening? I mean, spectator sports go. It's kind of dull. Well, especially when you got you could watch hot air balloons or yeah, exactly. uh, So when when Kleber after he's been assassinated by this poor guy. Um, he then gets succeeded by a guy called uh, Jacques-Francois Menou, who's an interesting figure. He's kind of pot-bellied, uh, rather ramshackle, long-haired, disheveled kind of figure. But what's interesting about him is that he's married an Egyptian woman and converted to his Islam. So he, he stops being uh, Jacques-Francois Menou and becomes Abdullah Menou. Does he? Yeah. So that's very that's like one of Alexander's sort of companions becoming a Persian satrap and going native. And that's why Napoleon approves of it and thinks it's brilliant. Yeah, Napoleon really thinks this is what happens to uh, Monsieur Menu. He goes back to France. Um, He's he's I think he he gets some kind of minor post and he ends up in a lunatic asylum. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, it's better than being impaled. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Okay, so that's the story of uh, the Napoleonic expedition, which is kind of a defeat because the British move in and establish a political presence in uh, in in Egypt. Um, But the French have established a cultural presence. And perhaps that's what we should come to after the break. All right. We'll see you after the ads. Hi, before we return to Napoleon in Egypt, um, regular listeners by now should be familiar with Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D.com, which is the online magazine that's sponsoring the podcast uh, and for whom both of us have written. Is that not so dominant? It is. I'm about to start writing a piece for Unheard in the next few days. Believe hey, it or what not. about? Uh, I don't know if I can tell you because other commissioning editors will... Ah. It's about a subject that you will really enjoy. Well, I look forward um, to that then. Okay. Yeah, but I can't tell you what it is because other people will steal Unheard's brilliant ideas. Okay. So um, if you uh, if you want to find out about that um, and read lots of other quality writing, there's a special deal. To Restless History listeners, three months free subscription, which should be cancelled at any time, normally one pound. Go to unheard.com forward slash rest and reminder unheard is U N H E R D to claim it. And I'm very happy to be advertising it, particularly today when we're talking about 
Napoleon in Egypt because I wrote an essay. Yeah, it says a banger here, but I don't know, I know what a banger is. Well, it is a banger. It is a banger. So it's it's title is The Age-Old Clash Between Islam and France. And right. the opening sentence, Dominic, the opening sentence, in 1798, Napoleon embarked on the first French invasion of Egypt since the era of the Crusades. Wow. So it's very timely, Tom. Did you write that knowing that we were doing the podcast or was it a complete coincidence? No, it was it was um, it was a while back in the aftermath of all the terrorist oh, attacks. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, uh, yes. So it was about yeah. it was about the Islamic State, uh, why they particularly hated France yeah. more than uh, perhaps even Britain or um, other European countries. Uh, when the Islamic State attacked the Bataclan and yeah. that, that that terrible night, um, the message of responsibility they put out cited both the Crusades and, by implication, France's role as uh, the revolutionary um, yeah. Enlightenment atheistical republic. And it's that kind of, the argument is, is that it's the fusion of those, you know, the Christian and the, the revolutionary that particularly that, riles. Right. And that uh, tension is definitely thing. still there because Unheard have an article this week about the French presidential candidate or, or would-be candidate, Eric Zemmour. Have you been following him, Tom? I have, the one who looks like Gollum. <laughs> yes, he does look like Gollum. Who and came he's, over uh, to London. Sort of, and, yeah. He's often described as being far right, isn't he? And and some of his statements are quite... um. Well, he's well, a fan of Marshall Petter, which I yeah, think qualifies you to be. I think that's yeah. I wouldn't. Um, all right, Marshall Petter is not the French national hero that I would reach for, personally. <laughs> no. Particularly since Eric Zemmour is Jewish, it seems very odd. Um, but uh, if you want to understand some of those complexities and paradoxes, and um, uh, this is was again an excellent kind of profile. They do wonderful profiles there. So uh, do check it all out. Unheard.com forward slash rest. U N H E R D. And now. Back to Napoleon in Egypt. Bienvenue au Restus History with me, Dominic Sambrook and Tom Holland. We are talking about Napoleon in Egypt. Tom, um, we had a lot of fun with the kind of campaign, but obviously the real significance of this is not so much military or kind of diplomatic. It is kind of intellectual and cultural, isn't it? So the savant, the, I mean, for, for, this is the moment that creates Egyptology. Is that, is that right? I, th I think it is. Uh, so Napoleon, um, uh, later in life, he, w he would look back at the Egyptian campaign and he would mourn the fact that his dream of becoming Alexander had been frustrated. But he would say, in the long run, it doesn't matter because the, the real conquests, the ones that uh, leave behind no regrets, are those made over ignorance. Oh, my God. I mean, we all know he didn't really mean that. <laughs> I think he was shameless I, absolutely I, shameless I, I think he was genuinely interested so on the say on the trip you know the long trip from france to egypt he he would host the various savants and they would kind of discuss all this stuff um yeah so so basically until this point egypt has been very much terra incognita intellectually ancient yeah. egypt people i mean for example nobody understands what hieroglyphics mean they they've tried to understand them they they think they're some kind of symbolic language but they don't know what it is and obviously it's on this trip that uh, that the french find built into what are the walls of a fort i think um there is the a stone, stone. The, the stone yeah the key the, well, arguably the the mo one of the most important artifacts in all world history yeah so it's it's um uh it's when Menu, the the Abdullah, as he'd become by this point, um, and it's uh, July seventeen ninety nine. So when the there's kind of threat from 
British and Ottomans and so on. And they're, they're rebuilding the walls around, around Rosetta. And they find this, yeah, this, this kind of black stone that has three, it's a trilingual announcement. And one of the, one of the announcements is in Greek. So they send it to, um, to Cairo to this, this thing called the, the, the Astitude d'Egypte which has been set up and it was set up in kind of August, almost 1798. So almost the moment that they get into to Egypt. And that's a, that's such an enlightenment in, institution, yeah. isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's literally what it is. And it's I, kind I, of an intellectual institution. And, and it stood there for years. It kind of got, it, it got burnt down in the Arab Spring. It did. Very yeah. sad. Um, but, uh, and, and so they immediately recognize its absolute key significance uh, and they, they send it back up to Alexandria, ready to be taken back to France. And then when, the, when all the French forces surrender in 1801, one of the terms of the surrender is that they have to hand over their loot. So the British get it. So that's why. Well, first, the, the French are very weaselly about that, aren't they? They hide a lot of their loot, and the British yeah. keep saying, "We know you've got more." What's in those crates like, hidden well, away? But they know about the Rosetta Stone because the news of it has kind of gone around Europe yes. like wildfire. Uh, yeah. And so the British, you know, they they definitely want it. So that's why it's ended up in the British Museum and, and not the Louvre. But what the French do have is uh, they have they have sent this expedition um, up the Nile to kind of chase the Mamluks and the various savants have gone. And there's this incredible description of them arriving at Thebes. So Luxor, um, Valley of the Kings, you know, this great monumental capital where bits of it are kind of still sticking out above the sand and it's sufficiently impressive that when the french army arrived there apparently they all spontaneously burst into applause at the site i thought you could say they burst into tears that would have been much more french behavior i'm sure some of them did i'm sure some of them did um and then they come back so that's in january when when of course the um the, the climate in luxor is is gorgeous but they come back in the summer and reconnoiter the valley of the king so they're the first Europeans and it's so hot that two of them die of heat stroke wow but imagine what that's to be like Tom I mean now when you're a child you know all children do ancient Egypt at school and they, they're so conscious of of them of mummies of the tombs of the you know the pyramids but imagine what that must have been like to have been the first people you know to, to be the, I mean they're, they're not the first Europeans of course they're nothing like it but they arrive and many of them do not know what to expect do they I mean, they, they've, the savant will have a sense that there's something there, but the ordinary soldiers, I mean, it must just be, if you're coming from, you know, the foothills of the Pyrenees or something, or the, or the, you know, the wine growing area, villages of Burgundy, I mean, this just must be mind blowing to see. And I think it is for the savant as well, because they're, they're finding stuff that, that no European has seen before and, um, recording it, tracing it all down. Um, but that's what they do, isn't it? There's amazing books that they produce. The um, what's it called? The description de l'Egypte, eighteen twenty-one, yes. four yeah. volumes, I think. So yeah. One now, one if you can get a copy, it's one of the most valuable books um, on the market on the it's, it's, stun- market. it's stunning, and it's it it it's a kind of Wikipedia of, of Egypt. So it's not just the antiquities; it's you know how people dress, uh, yeah. musical instruments they play, um, and that's a very enlightening thing, scene. isn't it? To, it to is. basically do, to do to now Napoleon has basically taken people and said, you know, compile an encyclopedia of Egypt. I suppose Edward Said would say it's a very colonialist project as well. It's well, it's, it's yeah. about, we can maybe come to him in yeah. a little. Yeah, um, he would, of course. Um, but one of the other one of the, I mean, one of the reasons why the um, the discovery of the uh, of the antiquities is has, has the impact it does is that um, it's not just Europeans who don't really know anything about it. The Egyptians don't either. The Egyptians, you know, there was a, a, a stage where the Egyptians were interested in the, the pharaonic monuments, but that stage is long gone. And basically they don't understand 
why anyone would be as interested in these antiquities as the French seem to be. Um, and one of the measures of, uh, of that is that, you know, the, the Great Pyramid, the kind of primal symbol of pharaonic civilization, that the, the passageways that lead into it uh, have become cluttered um, and impassable. And so Napoleon orders that, uh, in, you know, the, the first summer that he's in Egypt to be cleared. And <laughs> he... He then uh, he goes into the, um, the the king's chamber where the body of Cheops was placed and he orders everybody else out and he sits there communing with his destiny. And he self-consciously models that on Alexander going to the Oracle at Siwa and he never revealed what he thought or what what you know what was said what, what happened was nothing said happened by the by the mummy <laughs> of, of yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but again a kind of just such a kind of fabulously histrionic scene um uh, so so there's all that and 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 as we said the the, the british kind of claim the bragging rights politically i mean they establish a, a political protectorate over egypt that in the long run uh, you know lasts right the way up to suez really i guess um but the French established this this sense that they are the people who have brought ancient Egypt back to life. Um, and I guess that, that there are two things that really embed that. One of them, as you, as you said, is the description of Egypt, which is commissioned by Napoleon just as he's leaving Egypt. Um, and the, all these kind of various volumes come out and, and they, they're still being produced even after Napoleon has been defeated and, and died. But the other thing is that... Um, there's a guy called Joseph Fourier, who's a mathematician, and he becomes the first president of the Institute in Cairo. And he gets back with, he goes with Napoleon on the skedaddle back to France. And he settles in Grenoble and he has all kinds of antiquities around him. And growing up in Grenoble is a small boy called Jean-Francois Champollion. Now, he's a huge figure, isn't he, in the understanding of Egypt? Because isn't it not him? Is is he not the person who discovers how the Rosetta Stone works? Is that right? He so he cracks the hieroglyphs. Uh, yes, yeah, so he 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 uses the texts from the the Rosetta Stone basically to crack the hieroglyphs, and this is what then opens up the understanding of Egypt. And he goes back to Egypt, and he he goes down the Nile. And he's probably the first person who can read the hieroglyphs since antiquity. Well, I mean, he is. I mean, it's kind of an amazing thought. But also what's what's kind of um, tantalizing is that he's he's probably also the last person to see e Egypt as perhaps um, someone in late antiquity or the early Middle Ages would have seen it. Because what's going on is that um, Egypt's been taken over by this guy, this Albanian adventurer called Mehmet Ali, yeah, who is... Mohammed Ali. Uh, who is... Well, he's an amazing character, isn't he? I mean, he's... A, he, he, he absolutely is. And he is very... He has no interest in antiquities at all, which is why... He's, he's a modernizer. He's yeah. perfectly happy for the British and the French to kind of engage in competitive antiquity rustling. So that's how, you know, the Statue of Ozymandias in the British Museum, Lades of Antiquities in the Louvre, that's how they get there. Um, and those that don't get taken by uh, European plunderers kind of just get smashed, used as, you know, for lime kilns or whatever. So loads, so Champollion is the first to read hieroglyphs and he's possibly the last to see the antiquities as they had been for, for centuries and centuries and centuries before Egypt really kind of explodes into to modern And the kind of irony, Tom, is that even as this stuff is being either taken away or destroyed in Egypt, there's this kind of Egyptomania 
all over the kind of Western world. So it's just a few decades later that you get the construction of, say, the Washington Monument to George Washington, which is done as an Egyptian obelisk, something that probably wouldn't have been done that way Absolutely. You know, 50 or 100 years ago. But because of the aftermath of Napoleon's invasion, there is this absolute kind of mad fascination well, with also, all things Egyptian. And, and, and the obelisks being brought from Egypt, so Cleopatra's Needle Cleopatra's to London, Needle, yeah. and so on, that yeah. was taken to New York. Basically, um, every thrusting capital of yeah. a western power has to have an obelisk and i don't think yeah, you need to be big, freud yes to, to work out maybe what's but going that's on also there. kind of a roman thing isn't it because after octavian had defeated cleopatra the romans started putting out obelisks to remind themselves of how they'd been captured egypt and and so that there's a sort of weird kind of classicism in that yeah. as well isn't there yeah so, so, so the sense that um the greeks and the romans had ruled egypt uh and now the western powers should should equally have a stake is, is definitely a part of what's going on. But conversely, um, just as uh, people in, um, in in Europe are getting obsessed by Egypt, the Egyptians are, are very, very conscious of basically just how, how technologically advanced the French had been relative to, say, the Mamluks. And one of the things that Mohammed, Mehmet Ali, Mohammed Ali does is as part of his process of, of, of uh, modernization is to send Egyptian savant to Paris. And there's this one guy, Rifa al-Tatawi, who, who um, wrote a brilliant account of his trip to, to Paris. Um, and the, again, there's this sense of, um, you know, as, as with Napoleon going to Egypt, the sense that he's struggling to get a handle on a very different way of seeing the world. So likewise with Al-Tatawi, so he describes France as a land of infidelity and obstinacy. Um, (laughs) One of their bad customs is their claim that the intellect of their philosophers and physicists is greater and more perceptive than that of prophets. Um, And there's, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's there's a French observer of these Egyptians who've come to Paris to study and he's, he says of them that um, the only things that they learned to do in Paris was to speak passable French, to drink wine and to laugh at Mohammed. Oh, really? So this is very kind of, is it um, the guy Kutub who went to uh, America in the 1950s? Is that right? It's a kind of weird echo of that, isn't there? Well, Tatawi is, is, is more enthusiastic. He comes back to Egypt and he's, he um, founds a, a kind of a, 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 a European language centre. Right. Uh, so that people can learn languages and kind of translate treatises and industrialize yeah. and improve agriculture yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's going on. But, but essentially it, it generates tensions within the traditional model of Islamic culture yeah. that, that, that are enduring to the present day. Because the thing is that up until Napoleon lands at Alexandria, basically nobody in the Muslim world had bothered with what the infidels were doing. And they just had no interest in them, couldn't care. And it, it, it's assumed that, that Islam is able to structure everything. And essentially the shock of realising that that is not the case. And what do you, how do you do that? Do you try and integrate Islam with the kind of the trends that Napoleon and then the other European powers embody? Do you reject them completely? I mean, what do you do? These are 
tensions that are, are enduring throughout the Islamic world, throughout the 19th and 20th century, into the 21st century. And of course, as so, so there's one, one of the comments of Tatawi when he goes to Paris, he says there's not a single Muslim settled in Paris. I mean, that is clearly no longer the case. And so those those arguments and those tensions have to be resolved by Muslims who are now living in France. But they also, and you can see that the, what's going on with the presidential election moment in France. These are issues that are now dominating um mainstream French discourse as well. And as you say, that it's a particular issue for France, isn't it? Because I think it is, yeah. France has that kind of sense that Napoleon himself had of the kind of secular, rational, enlightened a Frenchness being bound up with secularism, with liberalism, um uh, which they, as you say, they think of that as something outside um religion. But I have a terrible feeling, knowing you, that you will say that is actually a product of their of their Christian heritage. Am I right? Yeah, I'm absolutely going to say that. <laughs> of course, I, you are. I, I'm absolutely going to say that because it's it's clearly true because the French are exporting, you know, deeply Christian assumptions about the possibility of church and state being separate entities. I mean, you know, there's no equivalent to the phrase church and state in your fluent Arabic, as you'll. That <laughs> of course, of course not. Tom, um, what about this? Um, what about this uh, Edward Said business? So we should definitely. So for those people who don't know, Edward Said is this sort of Palestinian intellectual, twentieth century, um, writing sort of nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties. He wrote a book called Orientalism that was massively influential. But I think historians, a lot of historians, have said is utter, 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 utter bunkum. Um, Do you think it's he, utter bunkum? Well, I don't think that you can make so. I mean, we all make mistakes, but I mean, to make. Uh, <laughs> I don't, don't think, think it's not a bunkum. I, I think, think when you've I made so no, many mis- so many no, mistakes, I, I think I think the 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 controlling idea that for, for for the Europeans in in the nineteenth century, of whom Napoleon's savant are the kind of archetype, um, the attempt to understand the countries that they were occupying. Um, was itself a part of colonial control. I mean, that seems to me indisputably true. But, but However, Tom, that's, but that's also, not, that's that's also not, just common sense. I mean, that's just no, blindingly well, obvious. But, it's, but to, 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 yeah, but but, to but, elaborate but, that into this grand theory... And well, to, I wouldn't say that because I would also say that it, it's, it's indicative of a curiosity that I think is rather admirable. Uh, you know, so, so it takes time for the Egyptians to become interested in ancient Egypt. You know, by the time that Tutankhamun is discovered, they they're very interested in it, and they're not going to let it all go off to to London or whatever. But in the early decades of the nineteenth century, they're not interested in it at all, and it's the Europeans who are interested in it. Uh, and I feel grateful to the savant that they, you know, they went and they they you know, and often in 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 many cases they 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 made illustrations, they made it studies of monuments that no longer exist because they were demolished by the modernising program of of Mehmet Ali. Yeah. No, I don't, I mean, um, Tom, so, I don't think anyone would surely, well, I mean, you'd have to be very, very impassioned, I think, um, to disagree with that. I mean, obviously, their curiosity is is one of the things that allowed these things to be preserved and that created Egyptology and that created a lot of these things. But also to see people, especially in sort of the sort of debased form of Edward Said's thesis, which is to see all almost all Western intellectual engagement in the East as a product of colonialism and only about power and only about control and all this. Um, I think that that is, I mean, uh, I could Robert Owen wrote a brilliant book about Orientalism that was a complete riposte to Said. They kind of sowed his 
you know just leveled his cities to the ground and said a lot of these people are actually themselves anti-imperialist that they weren't necessarily great advocates of empire and all this kind of thing and then actually yeah, well, it's like, mu- but again it's complicated isn't it because napoleon is saying we're coming here <laughs> to free you um we're coming here because we're against empires we're against the british empire we're against the ottoman empire but I think it's more complicated than that. I mean, I think I think I think there's a lot of of um, I think Napoleon is in a way that's perhaps typical of quite a lot of um, European figures in the early 19th century, simultaneously idealistic and deeply cynical. And the two seem kind of able to coexist in a way that perhaps we in the 21st century find difficult to understand. Maybe. I mean, um, Napoleon, if you put him alongside the people he worshipped, Caesar um alexander and so on i think he actually looks makes complete sense doesn't he that blend of political opportunism and and sort of genuine self-belief but also a belief in his moral mission i mean those things are yes but i think quite happily coexist but yes but i think i think that we in the 21st century for reflecting kind of the 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 way that the culture wars rumble we have a much more binary sense yeah we do that you're either an anti-imperialist or you're a a, a colonialist yeah Uh, in fact you know, both yeah. of those are equally European. I mean, they're equally Western. So yeah. it's not like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and, and you see them intermixed in the figure of Napoleon. You see them intermixed in this, in this whole extraordinary expedition. And I think that it is, you know, one of the absolutely kind of foundational episodes in, in modern history, modern global history. Because actually, when you think about European history, particularly before Napoleon, I mean, certainly in the sort of, 17th 18th century the ottoman empire the world of the middle east the engagement with islam they've slightly been pushed to the side haven't they i know there's the siege of Vienna and all that kind of stuff but for example in 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 um britain and in france they're no longer really thinking about christendom versus islam in the no. 18th century are they and then well, and after the invasion that will be very different uh, yes uh, uh, and I mean, you, I, well, you've got, you've kind of got this awakening of interest in Egypt. So as early as the 17th century, 1780 something, Leibniz, the, the philosopher and, and, and mathematician is suggesting to Louis XIV that the, the French go and invade Egypt. Um, and he's basically doing that to try and stop Louis XIV from invading Germany. But, but there's a kind of sense that, that Egypt is of interest. Um, and then you've got, you've got, uh, this, this guy, the Comte de Volney, who's, going to Egypt, drawing up this kind of sober report. But then is, is he, ha- he does a kind of very romantic uh, portrayal of Egypt as a land of ruins and timelessness and things. So that's also kind of feeding into it. And I think that um, there is, and I guess that Edward Said maybe has a point here, that there's a sense perhaps in which lots of people in Europe are more interested in a kind of fantasy of ancient Egypt than they are in, in the reality of... Yeah. But again, that's true of everything, right? I, I mean, we're, true. Yes, I true. we're always interested in the fantasy of something rather than the reality yeah, of it. I, I mean, that's that just the way the human imagination works. Anyway, um, I think we've probably, well, we haven't quite done this to death. I mean, there's tons more to say about it, but we should probably wrap this up. Well, there's certainly tons more to say about Napoleon, isn't it? And this is our, the first episode we've done on Napoleon. Uh, it a is. Real, a real gap. Uh, and I have yeah. to say that um, kind of uh, getting back to this whole theme, um, it just reminds me what an amazing figure he is and uh, and Nelson as well and lots to come. Yeah, we've got to do Nelson, Tom. Uh, we will uh, see you soon. A bientôt. Bye-bye. Au revoir.
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.